Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology Editor's Podcast for the February 22 issue. Uh, we're the two editors of the journal. I'm Phil Smith and I'm with my co-editor Geraint Fuller. And Geraint, this is actually our eighth editor's podcast and uh, it's proven, I think, to be quite an enjoyable and educational thing to be doing. How have you found the podcast so far? Well, well, Phil, I think it's safe to say that we've both enjoyed it and obviously we're rather hoping that some of the listeners or indeed some people are listening and are enjoying it. Obviously, it's not the only podcast that Practice Neurology does. We have our excellent editor's choice, which Tom Hughes has been doing really very effectively. And I would encourage anyone who hasn't listened to the previous ones to um, enjoy their car journey with a little bit of a CPD and listen to his previous work. And it's now been taken over by Amy Ross Russell and her uh, first recording should have been available already. And she'll be coming up with her next discussion with the authors of the editor's choice. And I have to say, I would thoroughly recommend them. So what about you, Phil? Have you enjoyed it? Well, I have enjoyed it. And, and the limited feedback we've had is that it sounds like a fireside chat, Garrett, you know, and uh, people say they can hear the coals uh, glowing and that you can uh, hear the glass tinkling and that sort of thing. Actually, the reality, I'm afraid, is a bit different because uh, here we are in different cities. You're dressed in scrubs. There's not a glass or an open bottle in sight, I think. So by all means, keep the image of the fireside chat in mind, I think, as we uh, proceed through the papers. And and the the metaphorical clinking of glasses. Uh, Indeed. So here we are. We've got a packed issue again, 100 pages in the February issue. And uh, we're going to start with the paper called Canvas, Cerebellar Ataxia Neuropathy Vestibular Areflexia Syndrome. And this is by Mary Riley's group from uh, Queen Square, but collaborating with uh, Pavia in Italy. And this is the group, actually, that described the genetic basis for uh, Canvas in 2019. So it's a real privilege to have the experts of Canvas writing for us. So... Uh, Garrett, you've been looking at this paper. I mean, this is one of those things which I think is going to be incredibly familiar in time. I mean, it seems to be a remarkably uh, recognisable syndrome, but a syndrome which links up a series of things at different levels of the nervous system that we don't normally think about. So broadly speaking, the idea is that you have initially a vestibular syndrome, a bilateral vestibular failure, and then you develop a, a neuropathy and an ataxia, a cerebellar ataxia. And this is all sort of progressive and it can come on at all kinds of ages, but typically in middle life. And this sort of phenotype and this mixture of different things is really unusual. And as a result, you can probably make a a genetic diagnosis quite commonly. It's it's recessive, but amongst the recessive genes, it seems to be one of the more common ones to find. And I think the other nice thing about this paper, which talks about the entire history and development of the syndrome and the genetic basis for it, is also the the sort of richness of the clinical description. One of the big clues, and I shall be watching out for it, is a dry cough, which is unusual in any neurological problem. But if you've got a patient with a cerebellar syndrome and these other features, and they've got a dry cough, then your genetic diagnosis narrows very dramatically. I mean, is it something you think you've seen, Phil? I've definitely seen it, Garrett, and, uh, but I've only labelled it once, actually. That was when uh, we had a new fellow from New Zealand who'd been f- very familiar with Canvas already and spotted it. I was wondering, actually, the, the name Canvas, of course, the S means syndrome, and so people often tautologically talk about Canvas syndrome. It may be better as Canvac, 
uh, to include the cough, because that's present, as you say, in two thirds. And really for uh, clinicians, that's that's going to be the big clue. I think I think it, it's, it's such a nice acronym. I, it would be foolish for us to to try and disrupt it. And um, yeah. I think we'll just still go with the canvas. I think Mary won't be a bit upset if you try to change its name quite so soon. We're, we're going to stick with canvas. And actually, I, I think the the other thing, as you mentioned, lots of different reasons for ataxia. So we've got cerebellar, vestibular, but also proprioceptive as well. And, and in fact, also half the cases have postural hypotension. Um, so lots of reasons why people might be very unsteady, very ataxic in, in canvas. And, and I think it's a testament to the clinical method that where you do need to work out all the various levels um, to disentangle it. And actually, sort of almost when you get a full house of the causes for ataxia, you think, well, is it, is it canvas? Um, you know, which sort of gets you there all the way in the end. Yeah. The, the paper's very nice because they also discuss the differential, other things you might want to think about. And uh, I, I think uh, I think it's going to become something that's familiar in the future. And certainly I've seen a number of patients who've had this who as yet had not been able to get the genetics done because obviously at the moment it's still a research genetic test, but hopefully that's going to be something that will be resolved relatively soon. Yeah, but the commonest autosomal recessive ataxia. Yeah, yeah so... Really important. So, um, Phil, uh, our next one is uh, aparaneoplastic neurological syndromes. Um, I mean, this obviously is a wonderful paper from the, the same team that gave us the autoimmune um, review relatively recently. So, Sarosha Rani working with Sophie Banks, Christopher Oi, and Jerome Honorat. So, uh, Phil, what do you think of this one? Well, you know, this, this, of course, this is our editor's choice. This is Sarosh again, you know, editor's choice twice in three issues. I mean, that, that must be a record to, that was going to stand for a long time. This paper comes hot on the heels of the updated guidelines for paraneoplastic disorder. So it's, it's uh, very current, very relevant. And uh, it, it made me think, actually, that often with uh, conditions, we say, well, you know, if only the, the key thing is to think of it. Uh, and then the diagnosis often follows. I think with paraneoplastic, the issue often seems to be that we think of it very, very often. It's there in the differential of lots of CPCs and registrars are often taking bloods for paraneoplastic things. And so often it isn't that. Uh, it's actually quite a rare condition affecting only one in 300 of uh, people with tumours. So it's overcalled in the differential diagnosis, but it is clearly a very important condition. And what um, Sarosh and the team have done is to set out, you know, once in a generation really, have uh, set out so clearly, I think, the, these uh, disorders and the associated antibodies. And he clarifies for me very clearly, I think, that uh, there are two broad groups. We've got the classical onconeural antibodies. This is anti-Hue, uh, so-called ANA1. We've got anti-RI, ANA2. We've got uh, anti-Yo, the Purkinje cell antibody one. I mean, these are the classical ones, and these are very tightly associated with uh, an underlying cancer. The problem is, because they are targeted against intracellular antigens, they may not actually be the pathogenic cause of it, and hence uh, removing the antibody with various immune treatments will not necessarily help the syndrome, and these are often uh, largely untreatable, with, with a couple of important exceptions, though, such as the MAR2 antibody in testicular cancer. But the other half, the emerging half, are the cell surface antibody syndromes, which um, we know about things like NMDA and AMPA and GABA-B. But these 
These are targeting cell surface antigens, and they are actually the pathogenic cause of the problem. Uh, and therefore, treatment of these will improve the syndrome. But they are less tightly associated with cancer. So NMDA, for example, we know that in young women with ovarian teratomas, but not with children or with men so much. And AMPA, usually associated with small cell cancer, but only in about half, and especially older people. So you know, th these are less tightly associated with cancer, but, but much more treatable. And, and you know, I, I, would, I, I felt the, the joy of this paper is in tables one, two, and three. I mean, uh, <laughs> these are going to be on my notice board very shortly, I think, that tables one and two give the clinical features, first of all, of the onconeural and then the cell surface one. Table three is the paraclinical features, MRI, CSF, EEG. You know, what more could we want? This, this uh, paper, which does cover treatment and ma management as well, Wonderful, wonderful paper, and uh, it just we really needed it, and now we've got uh, the answer to to our dream. So, uh, Sarosh and the team, thanks very, very much once again. I can't wait to hear the the podcast on it later in, later in the month. So, Phil, I think I think we've we've let the cat out of the bag. We've discovered one of your dreams is a paper on uh, paraneoplastic <laughs> antibodies. Um, the, one of the things I felt was quite interesting is it, it, it sort of enters the differential diagnosis broadly speaking with the relative speed of the emergence of the syndrome. So one of the reasons we've sort of lumped together what are actually conditions that affect lots of different levels of the nervous system is the fact that they tend to progress at the same sort of speed. And so there's a subacute onset, which is really very atypical for most other presentations. So um, I think it's really nice. And again, I think Sarah's done a very nice job of taking us through the differential uh, with the different levels of the nervous system once again. Yeah, and, and of course the management, like so often, is not a, a single clinician management, it is an MDT, and so one can imagine the decision over oophorectomy in a young woman with NMDA-associated teratoma, this is very much an MDT decision. So I think this is, um, you know, these sort of features are emphasised in, in the paper. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that these surface uh, antigen antibodies if the first treatment doesn't work, then it's worth a trial of second and third line treatments as well, because so likely are they to be immunoresponsive eventually to something. Should we move on to the next one, Garrett, which is the next one is uh, you, you're going to tell us a bit about Huntington's disease. So this, this is by Tom Stoker. He's the first author from Cambridge, but uh, Roger Barker is the senior author. Another beauty, I think you, you'd agree. Yeah. I mean, in, in many respects, here we have a clinical disorder, which actually is extremely well recognised. And so, you know, how often if you see someone who you suspect has Huntington's, will you be correct with the gene testing? I mean, it's something that perhaps we will be doing for Canvas at some point in the future. But at the moment, it produces a very recognisable set of syndromes. And um, broadly speaking, there's, there are no dramatic new features or new points being brought out here, but this is a very nice crystallisation of the current situation with Huntington's, how best to um, manage the patients, how, what, how to provide appropriate support, what you should be doing. One thing that I did think was new, and I hadn't really quite appreciated how tricky it was, was because of predictive testing being quite so widespread, frequently the issue is not, is it Huntington's, but is, does this patient who has a known genetic mutation, have they developed Huntington's disease? I mean, it may sound uh, almost uh, 
a theoretical thing, but clearly the impact of that is enormous for the individual. And I can see why it's challenging. And they discuss it, uh, issues attached to that. Yeah, I mean, it's the converse to something we were very familiar with, with Huntingdon's, which is someone who uh, has a strong family history and you know, develops career, but seems to have no insight into their symptoms. It's, it's the exact opposite of that, really, where uh, you know they clearly have Huntingdon's, but um, the part of the disease is the lack of insight. Uh, and I mean, another thing I think they cover very nicely in the paper is, is obviously when you see someone with Huntington's and they don't have Huntington's, that you've done the gene, it's negative. Well, what do you do then? And they've, they've got a nice approach with the other genetic disorders that can mimic it and how you should evaluate them and take it further forward. So I think it's a very nice crystallization of the current position that I think, uh, you know, for those of us who don't run a Huntington's clinic, if we're coming across patients, it will be a very ready source of useful and uh, informative advice. Yeah, and, and surprisingly long list of differential diagnosis, I suppose, uh, not not just the HD2, which we featured before in uh, practical neurology, but also things like DRPLA, C9, ORF72, SCARS, SCAR8, SCAR17, and uh, so uh, lots of things can be autosomal dominant and cause career and dementia. So uh, so for Phil, you, you, you'll appreciate, I, I didn't remember them, I, I merely remember that they were in fact in the paper. To, to make it <laughs> that's right, and that's what the paper's for, isn't it? <laughs> the paper is there to be looked up, and uh, but, but the, these are already on my notice board. That's the thing. <laughs> so, so the next one is a tackling a problem which is certainly not that uncommon in the referral practice for most people who will be running acute neurology services of any sort, and that is the scan-negative Cordaquina syndrome. And uh, Ingrid also and Bieber Stanton, Alan Carson and John Stone have produced a really nice paper which is directed to try and help neurologists help those patients who um, uh, have usually presented to the orthopaedic surgeons, the neurosurgeons, whoever, uh, they've had the scan, it's negative, well, what do you do now? And uh, they take you through the, the practicalities of trying to find an alternative explanation uh, HSV2 perhaps being the most sort of immediately treatable cause, and though there's quite a, a, a reasonable list of other things that you'll need to consider. But actually, a very substantial proportion of people really have a, a relatively uh, unexplained syndrome where they'll have uh, perhaps modest changes in their back, and uh, they'll be in retention, they'll be in a lot of pain, they'll be taking uh, tablets which for, for pain, so analgesics, which will tend to upset their bladder function, their bowel function. And the question is, well, what do you do for those patients? And I think the, the interesting thing is that they've got a nice analysis as to what physical signs tend to help. And the physical signs help, but they're not the whole answer. So you do need to take people through the diagnostic process. But actually, once you've found that you haven't got an explanation, then recognising that you need to adjust the medication, avoid things that uh, are likely to make them more constipated try and get the catheter out relatively early and um, take a very positive approach to try and uh, get people going. And there's a very high chance that you'll make a difference. And, and, and there's undoubtedly a significant overlap with other functional diseases uh, or f uh, functional neurological disorders. Yeah. So I think it's a very nice practical paper tackling uh, the sort of 60, 70% of patients who actually don't have the classical disease that everyone worries about. Yeah, and it is, it's one of those where the neurologist is tempted to say, it's good news, the scan is normal. But actually, that's very disappointing for someone who's left without any explanation for quite uh, upsetting symptoms. So 
the the group, of course, in in Edinburgh, their focus is much more on uh, not just saying what it's not, but actually working towards trying to help the patient and uh, thinking in terms of uh, uh, asking, as they do in the in their table, about uh, you know things that are that might be bothering the patient and uh, their perception of uh, what the disease is and um, symptoms of panic and depersonalization and that sort of thing. I was also taken by the fact that the the spinal scan, of course, will often be normal because the chance of a disc bulge is your age plus ten, like the percent chance. So, so I know this is this is inevitable almost. By the time you reach ninety, anyway, you will you're one hundred percent will have a disc bulge. So it's something that. Uh, also, I think the other thing was the examination. I mean, they they guard against doing anal tone and subtle sensation as well i mean should these be routine they ask i mean for, for us brought up in the traditional model uh, this was the absolutely sacred cow part of the examination to to examine in in someone with uh, potential cord requirement syndrome they're, they're thinking that these might even be a harmful thing to start uh, examining and but i think it's it's bringing some science to those patients who don't have the classical disorders and i think that's really one of the, the things, in fact, John Stone and Alan Carson's contribution um, to functional neurology has been really helpful in trying to help that very large number of people who, who just fall outside the uh, classical lines. Yeah. Um, so no, I thought it was a really, really nice and, and very useful paper. And I think, I, I don't think we're, we're quite yet ready to abandon the traditional examination, but I think it's quite a, a, a persuasive and helpful way to approach it. Yeah. And that brings us on, on rather nicely to, to the idea that we might be able to help patients in ways that rather surprise us. Yes. So this is because we have a paper this month on hypnosis. This is by uh, Wendy Phillips, is the lead author from Cambridge, uh, collaborating with uh, people in Middlesbrough and with uh, King's College Hospital in London. This is a how to understand it paper because it's something that perhaps neurologists should know more about. The you know, traditionally, historically, neurologists did a lot of hypnosis, but maybe it isn't part of the current model uh, of mainstream neurological practice. And um, what this paper? This paper actually is accompanied by an editorial from Mark Edwards, who is from um, uh, St George's Hospital in London. He, he helps to put this into its appropriate practical clinical context. But um, what I learned from this was that hypnosis, that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. You clearly can't hypnotise someone against their will. You've got to want to do it. And all the hypnotist is doing is guiding you through the process. And eventually, you will reach the stage where you are able to practise self-hypnosis. And we all do a bit of this anyway. Uh, maybe methods of trying to go off to sleep and this sort of thing is to try to focus intently on something and reduce your peripheral awareness. And you put yourself into that state. Actually, it is a state where you are uh, have enhanced capacity for suggestion if someone is able to say, yes, you are more relaxed now and this sort of thing. 
So the paper takes us through the history of hypnosis, Charcot's attitude to it and this sort of thing, which is helpful. The cognitive neuroscience of it, something which I must say I had to read two or three times. I mean, everything in there is absolutely correct, but it comes as a new concept for uh, a lot of practicing neurologists. But it's worth the read, I think. And then how it might be applied and its link with... um, Uh, functional neurological disorder in particular and uh, the importance of prior beliefs and um, so-called rogue priors and so forth in uh, functional neurological disorder. And then the bit we were all waiting for, the procedure, how do you actually do it? And uh, that is all set out there with the initial uh, focus on things like breathing and then going down the metaphorical steps uh, to the time when you would be a bit more suggestible and then helping people out of it as well. So I, I learned really that hypnosis is not any state of altered consciousness, um, like sleep is, for example, but it is an altered experience of consciousness. And um, that, I, th- I think, is, is a helpful thing. Um, that, no, there, there are also ways that we, we can change our practice by taking some tips from hypnotists uh, and how they use words and that sort of thing. But essentially, the bottom line is that um, this isn't part of the working model. As uh, Mark Edwards says, you know, it would, it, rapid turnover our outpatients, that sort of thing, is not conducive to uh, a hypnotist practice. This is much more uh, a theatre list of three or four patients a day that we would require in order to be able to help patients like this. I, mean, I, I think, for me, there were several different lessons. The first is that there does seem to be some reasonable cognitive neuroscience behind it, and we're developing an understanding of how it might be useful and, therefore, how it could be reasonably applied to patients with the difficult problems where it goes beyond the conventional patterns of pathology. And obviously functional patients or patients with functional disorders will be the large number of those. And I think Mark's editorial very nicely highlights the sort of slight disquiet one has even thinking about these kind of alternative therapies and the fact that we shouldn't really be that troubled by it, but we should see it as perhaps an opportunity. And if we could try and do it a bit better and understand it better, well, we'll benefit the patients if we can. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea that we could actually think about doing trials in this kind of area is something which is now plausible and potentially might therefore be very helpful. And so I think th- this is the beginning. I don't think we should be all rushing off and trying to do it at home. But uh, I think the idea that it's possible to do it is something we should be aware of. Yeah, and, and s- some lessons, I think, for clinical practice. And actually going back to the cord requina, I mean, the, the words that we use are, are important. And uh, if we do start talking about wear and tear in the spine, you immediately set the seed. Uh, and and th- I think they, they would suggest, for example, if someone with MS, instead of saying brain scars, uh, they would say MS areas. And when you're doing a, a lumbar puncture, instead of saying sharp, scratch you'd say try some soothing anesthetic and this sort of thing Uh, and there are people already practicing bits of hypno I I read in the paper this morning that Billy Connolly the veteran Glaswegian comedian actually uh, has Parkinson's disease and he hypnotizes his hand into stopping tremoring just by uh, focusing all his attention on that so I think I think there are ways that we can help patients to help themselves but um and, and I think there's a lot in this paper that, that is potentially very helpful. But uh, it, it's more about uh, it, using it as a starting point, I think, perhaps, rather than just changing over to neurologists becoming um, full-time hypnotists. 
Yeah, I, th- I think we can agree on that. Um, we, we've then got a, a couple of physical signs. So we, we started with an unusual situation, as is often the case in uh, thinking about papers. We, we had a very nice case report where a patient is reported as having a wall-eyed bilateral intranuclear ophthalmoplegia uh, as a consequence of one of the um, MABs. That really made us wonder, well, what is a wall-eyed bilateral intranuclear ophthalmoplegia? And so we asked Christian Lewick and Luke Bonetto, and they told us. Phil, I think it's over to you. They did tell us, yeah. So th- this this is based on this case report of etanercept for psoriasis. is a TNF-alpha inhibitor. And uh, this, I think, causes demyelination or might unmask underlying MS or something. And it caused this, caused this wall-eyed intranuclear. But for for us, the main interest is why on earth it should be called wall-eyed. Because in my ignorance, I had assumed that wall-eyed meant that there was a wall either side that stopped you looking laterally. In fact, it means quite the reverse. It, it means that uh, you are forever looking at the wall. You are looking outwards and you can't adduct the eyes. So wall-eyed intuitively seems to mean uh, the wrong thing. And um, when you look at Walsh and Hoyt, uh, the massive textbook on neuro-ophthalmology, there's nothing about this. And so thankfully, Luke Benetto and Christian Lueck, um, very distinguished neuro-ophthalmologists, have researched this and have found out that this is an historical term that goes back to the Middle Ages, actually, that um, wall-eyed probably is a corruption of um, the, the of the term, and that it doesn't actually mean a wall. It's more to do with the colour of the eyes, and that the colour of the eyes, if you're suddenly seeing the whites of the eyes looking surprised, you'd be called wall-eyed in Shakespeare. And then, since then, neuro-ophthalmologists have, have used the term to become, you know, webinar, which is uh, a, a corruption of it. To, to me, wall-eyed seems a little bit insulting. I, I, I wouldn't be reluctant to tell someone that they had a wall-eyed problem. And uh, the last line of their editorial is actually to replace it, please, with ebino, taking out the, the W uh, and calling it um, ebino, which would mean exotropic bilateral internuclear ophthalmoplegia. So what do we think of that? Well, I, thought, I think it's quite interesting. And the other point within it is that it, when it was first described, was notionally supposed to have additional localization. And the truth of the matter, that doesn't appear to be quite the case. So it's a little bit more complicated. However, I think it's useful to have the background, and they've done a very nice historical piece for us. Very nice job. It leaves a few unanswered questions about INO. I mean, why is diplopia so rare in INO? That's another editorial for Christian. Yes. <laughs> to tell us why. <laughs> We've then got a, a, a couple of other things that we thought we would like to mention. Um, Charles Warlow, who founded Practical Neurology, uh, obviously in reference to um, Matthew's book, he, in one of his own books, set a challenge. And the challenge was that if you could make a diagnosis of a cerebral AVM using auscultation alone, then if you could prove it, you could get a free copy of his book. And uh, Andrew Lana has written a very nice piece where, broadly speaking, he has explored this and demonstrated, uh, really demonstrated Charles's wisdom in setting this challenge and actually discouraging us all from wasting time and uh, spending time listening to parts of the head because, frankly, it's really not going to do anything other than uh, impress the medical students in the one in uh, you know, 10,000 cases where it might pay off. 
So I think very nice and interesting different analysis of a clinical sign or physical sign and a critical evaluation in the way we would for other investigations. So I thought Andrew Lund's done a very nice piece piece of work for us there. He has. And of course, in practical neurology, we tend not to do hero worship, but we make the exception for Charles Warlow. I think that uh, he's one whose name features many times in this article and deservedly so. Um, and, uh, and actually, it's nice it, with... Uh, Andrew's article that he does mention that there was this case of uh, a chap at the Johns Hopkins in 1954 who um, had nothing better to do and the students were around and so he started listening to the orbit of this patient and was startled to hear this um, brewery, loud brewery. And from that moment onwards, he was sort of immortalised as the man who diagnosed this uh, AVM with this stethoscope only. And he said, uh, from that moment onward, there were crowds around and I'd been catapulted to instant fame, cancelling out any number of previous blunders. So there we go. <laughs> it is worth it. A bit of grand roundsmanship uh, you know, goes a long way. Well, but, but I think we're, we're keen to discourage that activity. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So we're saying it's not a practical thing to do. All right. OK. No. So it's an impractical thing to do. And uh, we've got one other paper that we thought we'd just highlight, which is uh, basilar artery thrombosis, which is a paper of mere my neurological illness. And Phil, I think you're going to take us through that as well. Yes. Well, this describes someone's worst nightmare, I think it has to be said. I mean, th there can be no worse neurological condition than locked-in syndrome. And uh, David Grundy was Professor of Biomedical Science with a special interest in brainstem control. And 16 days after he retired from that job, he developed a basilar artery occlusion and a, a pontine um, infarct and became locked in. And he woke up completely locked in, unable to move, unable to communicate. But little by little, he was able to move his eyes and use an alphabet board and eventually, actually, thankfully, was able to mouth some words. But his first words were he wanted to die. And in fact, the story has a happy ending, I'm delighted to say. So despite going through this, he did continue to improve. He had an infarct that was not as extensive as it, as it might have been. Uh, he communicated with someone in, he knew in the Mayo Clinic and uh, they looked at the scans and it was agreed that actually, despite his initial very negative view, he was persuaded to uh, carry on valuing life and engage really, really fully with rehabilitation. It was actually at the time of COVID-19 pandemic and so he spent all this time without any visitors or hardly any visitors. It was uh, desperate. But gradually came off the tracheostomy after about three months and uh, you know has made a, a miraculous recovery. When the bottom line of, of it really is that he is saying that miracles do happen and the clinicians who make a comment um, at the bottom of the article say that we have to beware of reactive depression uh, in this terrible situation because it, it may still be that the prognosis is not quite as desperate as it seems. I thought, I mean, it's a very nicely and very movingly written piece. I think one of the things I thought practically was quite useful was the helpful scan, the MRI scan, which actually showed that the size of the infarct was very much smaller than seemed to be initially clinically manifest. And that was obviously very helpful in uh, helping prognosticate and uh, to have a, a discussion with someone who, who couldn't really have had more insight into the impact that brainstem control um, or rather loss of could have on someone's life. So I think it's a, it's a very moving piece. And in a way, 
We have these slightly unusual categories of papers in practical neurology, and I think uh, this is a very fine example of why it's a useful thing for us to have. Yeah. So um, we hope you've enjoyed this uh, Practical Neurology podcast. If you would like to subscribe, you can do so on your podcast provider of choice. Uh, if you'd like to review it, and particularly if you give it a positive review, it'll help other people find it, and we'd be very grateful. If um, you didn't think so much, well, maybe uh, don't bother. <laughs> Um, if you're ever looking for it, you need to put in PN Podcasts, and that will take you to the appropriate place. So not, not only will you be able to hear us uh, review the overall edition, you will also be able to hear Amy Ross Russell discussing the Editor's Choice paper in the subsequent podcast. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>